I personally can find that really frustrating. Like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I just put this down? I find it helpful to realize, oh, wait a second. Like you said, it's actually designed to keep me there. It is designed with um, expert knowledge from behavioral psychologists, drawing from neuroscience, right? Like um, there's incredible amount of brilliant research, brilliant experts that have poured their energies into designing the platforms to keep us there. Um, And so when we are struggling, we're actually struggling against an entire system. Welcome to the newest episode of the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. My name is Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, we are talking with sociologist Felicia Wu Song about her new book, Restless Devices, about what our devices may be doing to us and what we can do about it. If you are reconsidering new rhythms and new practices as you start a new year, this conversation is a great place to begin. And as always, if you find our content helpful, it does help us immensely whenever someone takes the time to share the episode or leave us a review. Thanks again for tuning in. In Jonathan Swift's 18th century satire, Gulliver's Travels, Gulliver travels to a land where he meets a race of tiny people. One of the interesting details of his encounter with them is that they believe that Gulliver's pocket watch is his god. Why? Because of how often he looks at it. Indeed, he tells them that he never does anything without consulting it. One can only guess what the little people would think of our relationship to our smartphones, which is, for many of us, the last thing we look at before we sleep and the first thing we reach for when we wake. The smartphone is a piece of communications technology that has single-handedly reshaped the way we are present in a space, the way we think of our time, even our sense of what it means to be human. When I was a youth pastor 10 years ago, students were required to leave their phones behind whenever we went on three-day retreats. I doubt that I could still enforce such a rule. I do make rules against smartphones in my freshman classes, If I see a phone during instruction time, that student is marked absent. At least that's what I threaten to do. If given a break in the middle of class, however, the first things that most students will do is not turn to talk to each other or even go to the restroom. Most students reach for their smartphones. It's almost as if they are coming up for oxygen after a long deprivation. What's most troubling to me about smartphones is not the challenge that they create for my teaching but the challenge they create for my everyday life. I feel the pull of my phone when I try to pray, when I spend time with my family, when I try to write. Each time I pick up my phone and direct my attention away from whatever is in front of me, it feels like a harmless diversion. But these diversions add up, and I'm often surprised to see the weekly screen time report that my phone delivers to me on Sunday of all days. One of the things that I've learned as I've struggled with smartphone addiction is that willpower is not enough. Concrete measures are necessary, like leaving my phone in another room, as well as consistent rhythms of appropriate use. Because without these things, my phone interrupts, asserts itself, and restructures my life in the direction of distraction. In her excellent new book, Dr. Felicia Song offers us a sometimes somber diagnosis of what our devices are doing to us. 
But she doesn't stop there. She also offers us a grace-filled vision of a better way to be human, a way to recover things that we are in danger of losing, undergirded by the Christian story of what it means to flourish. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Felicia Song. I'm joined now by two guests. My first guest is my co-host, Dr. Kate Frisch. She is an editorial board member here at In All Things and professor of biomedical engineering at George Fox University. Kate, thanks for hosting with me. Thanks for having me, Justin. It's great to be here. And our feature conversation is with Dr. Felicia Song, a sociologist and professor at Westmont College and author of the new book we are discussing today, Restless Devices, Recovering Personhood, Presence, and Place in the Digital Age. Dr. Song, thanks so much for joining us on the In All Things podcast. It's really great to be here with both of you. I really appreciate the invitation. Well, first of all, thank you so much for writing uh, such an important book, a book that is quite convicting about something that is very much a part of most of our everyday lives. And maybe this is a good way to kind of get into the the question. I often have students, usually freshmen, uh, write papers about their smartphones. Well, the prompt is always write about something that you take for granted and reflect on it from a Christian perspective. And I can almost guarantee that most of the students will pick their smartphones. And I can almost also guarantee that most of them will have a sentence, something like, my phone is just a tool. It's good when I use it for good things like the Bible. It's bad when I use it to look up bad things. Uh, and you know that's maybe a simple way of saying it. But I wonder if most of us maybe do think of our devices that way. The problem is the way we're using it or how much we're using it. And one of the things I really appreciated about your book is that you're trying to move us from seeing our devices just as tools Uh, And you give us all these other metaphors to think about, like a polluted digital ecosystem or another, uh, a lack of oxygen that we experience while living at altitude. I wonder if you could just say more about that, uh, filling out the picture of what our devices and the powers behind them might be doing to us and why just seeing our devices as tools is is really limited in the way that we think about them. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate that uh, you have that assignment for your students. I think it's so great. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think um, as uh, Americans, uh, many of us think of technology as neutral. Um, We think of it as a tool, something that we can pick up and put down. It just depends on whether a good person or a bad person is using the technology, that that's the effect that it has. Um, And while there's an element of that that is true, It's not helpful when it comes to um, thinking about the kinds of relationships we actually start to have with our technologies and the kinds of effects that it has on us, right? Like I think the technology as a tool idea suggests that as human beings, um, we're the ones that are driving um, what's happening, um, that that's the only um, dynamic that's occurring. And we tend not to recognize ways in which um, our technologies are artifacts, they're products, they're end products of a process um, that engineers and designers have invested in, companies and organizations with commercial interests usually have invested in. So what we are using is actually, I argue, incredibly value-filled 
It is not neutral. The technologies, especially when it comes to digital information and communication technologies, are the end products of lots of values um, about um, life being better when it's efficient, life being better when um, we can do things outside of our bodies, uh, life being better when we are more productive, right? Um, those are all problems that engineers and designers and companies have tried to solve, right? Or life is better when we connect with each other than when we can hear from each other and express ourselves in, in whatever way we may want to. I think what sociology has to offer is a way of seeing behind the just the, the device itself and to realize that when we are working with our smartphones or our laptops, we're actually encountering and engaging an entire system, an entire economic structure, an entire industry, right? Media and technological um, that have interests, that have their own goals. Um, and to the degree that our contemporary digital platforms are all based on an attention economy, that is their, their ways of making money is to draw in our attention to keep us there, to engage us, right? It's, it's all about keep, you know, ramping up engagement. Um, that means that there are certain mechanisms um, that, that are designed into keeping us there, right? And, and so when, when we are trying to maybe moderate our use and getting frustrated, like I personally can find that really frustrating. Like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I just put this down? I find it helpful to realize, oh, wait a second, like you said, it's actually designed to keep me there. It is designed with um, expert knowledge from behavioral psychologists, drawing from neuroscience, right? Like there's incredible amount of brilliant research, brilliant experts that have poured their energies into designing the platforms to keep us there. And so when we are struggling, we're actually struggling against an entire system. Yeah. So a lot of times there's a little bit of pushback um, that we might feel to that, you know, as if we don't have agency or something like that, yeah. or students will, will watch the social dilemma that um, <laughs> the documentary that came out on Netflix last year and say, yeah, I mean, I guess I can get it, but you know, I really am the one who decides what I do. How, how would you respond to that sort of pushback? <laughs> um, well, one thing I always love talking about with my students is the way in which many of the managers or CEOs or vice presidents in, in Silicon Valley who now have kids um, that they who, who now have kids and send their children to tech free schools, right? These private schools, you know, the Waldorf schools, you know, we always have a nice conversation about, well, why are they doing that? You know, um, what do they know? that we don't know, right? The very people who designed the product. Um, you know, anyone who studied behavioral psychology and knows anything about B.F. Skinner um, and, and his experiments with the ways that, you know, in his experiments, it was rats, but, you know, the, the uh, analogy is that it happens with us as human beings too, that we can get trained with certain stimuli, right? Like that it's happening um, behaviorally. And, and now we understand that there's neurological pathways, right? That we can actually be trained to just respond compulsively to certain notifications or stimuli. Um, that is really powerful. And, and the truth of the matter is, yes, there's a lot of things that we can have agency and control over. But I think a lot of my students, and I would suspect your students are the same, 
would admit to the fact that there are some times when they pick up their phone and they actually don't know why they're doing it. <laughs> like it, it's just, I don't even know what I'm looking for, but I'm just, I've just, I just feel like I need to scratch an itch. Um, or there's some kind of anxiety there that I want to address. I think there is still agency. Um, we're not complete um, pawns, um, but I think we also need to recognize the reality of how we we are living in an environment that is shaping us very powerfully, um, and we shouldn't be naive about that, right? We shouldn't be um, naive, especially if, for those who might be wanting to make a change, right? That I think it can be incredibly disempowering when you think it's all on you. Um, and that it's your problem when you, I think it's helpful to actually realize, oh, wait a second, I'm actually pushing up against something fairly substantial. Can I, can I take that and circle back to what you said a couple of minutes ago about, you know, the designers and you spend quite a bit of time talking about Tristan Harris and, um, you know, some of the other whistleblowers from Silicon Valley early in the book and whatnot. Um, and, you know, you mentioned a moment ago, the pretty well-known fact now that all of the CEOs send their kids to Waldorf schools and things <laughs> like that, right? So what what role, you know, knowing that there's all these designers um, who have really formative roles and a lot of, I would probably argue, ethical responsibility in the products they create, what do you think that a Christian working in those spaces, right? Whether it's somebody in Silicon Valley or even just an engineer, you know, or computer scientist, you know, working on something less, you know, kind of like embedded and meshed in our lives than our smartphones, maybe. What responsibilities do you think um, they have to do something differently in that mm -hmm. process? Yeah, I think there's two areas that are fairly doable in my mind, um, that can be addressed in the technologies. I think uh, transparency is a big one, right? Like most of us don't know what's going on. Like why are the posts that are showing up in my feed the ones that they are, right? There's a tendency, if you haven't heard about it or read, read on it, there's a tendency to just think like, oh, like these are just the important ones, <laughs> right? Like there's just sort of like this is, or when you do a search on Google, well, this is just what's out there in the internet universe, right? And everybody's getting the same, uh, you know, findings that, you know, like if you don't know, there's an algorithm that's actually drawing from all the data right, that you've been giving off. And, and spitting out the feed and the search results, you have, you have no idea that your reality, what you're seeing, your perception of reality is actually incredibly filtered. And so I think transparency about that process would be really helpful. And this is kind of getting at Justin's uh, point about agency, right? I think transparency about what's actually happening um, is important for users that can be built in. And that can uh, also then bring in the option of actually giving more control to users about the algorithm, right? Um, to say, all right, well, here, you know, do you want, you know, it to just be all this, you know, one, the, the do you only want to hear from the people that think what you think, right? Um, and, and that they actually have to opt into it, right? And, and so I think it's a, it's, it's, I think, Companies and, and platforms are starting to do things like that more in the last, you know, even five years. I think you see those changes. Um, but I think it it also needs to um, be an issue of like, what are the defaults? <laughs> you know, the default is usually like, if you want to take control, you have to do a lot of work, 
right? Like it, it takes a lot of work to go through the preferences and the settings, you know, like I walk my kids through it. Um, you know, whenever they get a new app, I'm like, okay, have you, have you checked your preferences and your settings? They're like, what, well, what am I supposed to do? You know, I think it can be set up differently in a way that like, you can't even use this service until you got to set these preferences and settings. Right. And so I think there's ways to empower the user and, you know, and then it doesn't mean that by doing that, it solves political polarization or solves, right. But at least it starts to give a little more agency exactly to um, people and for them to understand, okay, I'm actually working with this tool that, that functions in this way. I understand there's an algorithm. Um, I'm going to make the choices that I make, you know, and this is what I'm getting. It's not just like a blank slate. Oh, this is reality. Um, These benevolent companies are just giving me what's actually happening out there. I'm sure you've heard, you know, the media recently about, you know, the Instagram and teen girls and all of the negative mental health kinds of things around that um, and how Facebook now meta is just kind of like throwing up their hands and being like, well, yeah, so not my problem. And you talk about how, you know, there's this need for change. There's this need for systemic change. Obviously, Facebook has made it clear they're not going to lead the charge. Who do you envision being the one that might lead a charge like that? Or how do we make a grassroots you know, change happen when everybody's addicted and, you know, wants to just hang, hang tight to this thing, even if it's hurting me. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's the question of the hour, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I think many of us think, okay, well, what kind of government regulation can there be? We need our Congress to know how technology works one, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, part of it might you know, if we go down the government regulation path, I think some of it might be a matter of taking existing laws about media companies, um, about other types of services that are offered uh, through different organizations and saying, actually, these tech companies, we can't categorize them merely as tech companies. They are also media companies. Like We can hold them accountable to existing laws if we change the categories of what these companies are. That's one way. And I know folks have been working on that. Other countries, you know, have have set up different kinds of regulations that protect particular populations, whether it's children or other vulnerable populations on advertising. You know, I mean, I think there are possible paths. I do think when it comes to social movements, we probably need to wait on more research coming out. You know, like the research is, there's always a lag, right? On, on you know, you think about like smoking, safety belts, you know, all the, those types of examples where there were, there were grassroots efforts that were, that were pushing for eventual regulation, right? That it required just reams and reams of, of data. And so unfortunately, um, I feel like we're going to need reams and reams of data, like the ones that are starting to come out now to start to build the case. And then I think you, you do need institutional backing, right? Like, sure, families might be upset, parents might be upset, but then it's just like school systems, civic organizations like churches and synagogues, right? Like, 
will that will have it will have to become like a real social problem, right? Yeah. Um, I loved your phone hotel. The end, <laughs> the very end of the book, your phone hotel in class it was like we should just do that everywhere, church, like my house, my classroom, like yeah, everyone just it. check in your phone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um. So I, you know, and but I think what's interesting is that like a lot of the 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 tech companies, you know, like Slack, right? Like these companies actually within their organizations are starting to build really interesting policies for their employees, right? That are like, hey, you know, when you go on vacation and whatever emails show up in your box, like you get to expunge them, you know, like what, <laughs> you know, because there's recognition of like, this is just not sustainable for people, right? Um, like people can't stop working with the kind of technological affordances that now exist. And so I think, um, you know, organizations can start making those changes um, and hopefully that can pick up some steam. So we've been talking about defaults on devices and we also have all of these different norms of just social interactions uh, of the way we are present in social spaces with our devices. One of the things I've noticed, you know, I teach a 75 minute class and often I'll give students a break about 50 minutes through. And up until that, that point, you know, they're not to have their phones out. You know, we've sort of set that as a classroom expectation. But I sometimes wonder if the most important thing that happens during the 75 minutes or the most formative thing that happens is when I give them the break and the first thing that everybody does is pulls out their phone. Uh, and it made me think of, because you have a part in your book where you talk about the smartphone as an oxygen tank where they're coming up for air, right? We we see classes or you know, embodied interactions almost as distractions from what's the most interesting thing, which is the life that we live with our devices. And uh, I wonder if you could just say more about that and even some of the assumptions that lie beneath that, uh, that practice, that social norm of, you know, as soon as you're done doing whatever it is you're doing, where you know you're not allowed to have a phone or you shouldn't have a phone, the first thing you do is get the phone out again. You know, I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about that. Yeah. One of the things I argue in the book is that not only are we able to access our devices and get online almost 24-7 now, right? Um, it's just so easy. Um, we can look at our wrist, you know, those of us who are wearing watches, right? Um, and and there, you know, we can find out what text or, you know, whatever it is, um, that we actually have moved into a state of permanent connectivity. That is our consciousness has actually shifted, right? Where we don't even need to be looking at a screen at all. And our minds are actually already there. And I think Dalton Conley puts it nicely when he says that we, we become a people who live elsewhere, you know, like we're sitting in the meeting, we're sitting wherever our physical bodies are, but our spirits and our consciousness, you know, we're like, we're thinking about where that, what happened to that post that we, we put up that picture that we put, like, is anybody liking that picture I put up this morning? <laughs> right. Or what's someone texting me? Um, and, and we don't even need anything, you know, in front of us to be somewhere else. Yeah. To your example, right. It's like our proximate surroundings, what, what we're actually physically experiencing is increasingly recessing into the background as the mundane, the, the constrained realities that we're kind of stuck with. And what's happening online is increasingly filled with a kind of aura 
of, of glamour, of excitement, of that's where it's happening. And I think, you know, some of this, especially I think for younger people, it's, it's complicated because that's actually where things are happening, right? Like their social lives are happening online. So it's conflated, you know, like anyone who's an adolescent, no matter what their age, right? You're, you're consumed with your social life in, in deeper ways, right? Um, in that part of that time in your, your development. Um, and so it, it's understandable that your mind might be elsewhere thinking about whatever the social dynamic is that, that is concerning you. But I would argue that the online space is so curated. It's so highly produced. It's so beautiful, <laughs> right? Compared to the drab, flawed, awkward, very often realities of our embodied lives, that our embodied lives look gray, right? Like literally feel gray against the pop of the colors and, and the beautiful filtered realities or unrealities that you see in in Instagram, for example. And so, uh, you know, and I felt this myself when I'm on social media is, is that, that I feel this strange inversion of like feeling like what's going on in my social media feed is more important or more interesting than um, what's happening in my proximate um, environment. There's a loss there um, on lots of different fronts. And, and I think part of it is that we actually are getting so trained into um, knowing how to be online that we're, we're actually, you know, young people and, and older are, are losing um, familiarity with how to actually be in person <laughs> um, and not just with each other, but in like spaces and with ourselves, um, we partly because we just don't do it a lot anymore. Like we're, we're just not really there where our minds are kind of elsewhere. Kind of along those lines, there's a growing movement in kind of the knowledge work industry um, that is, as you alluded to with some of the tech companies a few minutes ago, you know, when you're on vacation, you're on vacation. But like, even more than that, there's like a subculture that is really trying to embrace both distraction-free work and something that they're calling deep work. And also, I, that's really quickly morphing into a deep life philosophy, right? Like, a, I'm really being intentional about my tech choices. I'm, I'm choosing not to be on social or I'm choosing only to look at Twitter once a week or I'm choosing, you know, like I have Instagram for this one reason and I do it once a week or, you know, right? Like using some of them are using, but it's a, an intentional choice, not a, you know, kind of a flow of the moment choice. And so I'm curious you're pushing people to think about going down a path like that for people who are maybe already part way down that path or a long way down that path, you know, as Christians, what are the pitfalls you think that those people might come up against as we kind of like try and start to think intentionally about how we use our tech? Yeah. Yeah. The deep work and deep, deep life movement is super interesting because I feel like so much of it gets it right. You know, like, I mean, it's sort of like, yeah, like we need to be more intentional. We need to relearn how to be in one place doing one thing. Right. And, and so that, that is um, to me, like, yeah, we're, that, that seems to be pointing in the right direction. Um, but as you said, I think there's, there's an interesting way in which it seems like the philosophy of, of deep life is premised on uh, a kind of 
championing of productivity and optimization, you know, maximal optimization, like that, that's what life is about. Absolutely. That is, and, that is and, the key and, thing. Yeah. And, I, and to your question about, well, what does that mean for people of faith? And, and this is sort of what I think the book is really getting at, which is like, when we just let ourselves be formed by this digital ecology um, and even, um, well, the, by the digital ecology, we get formed into a story. We're formed into a story of what the good life is and what life, not even what the good life is, but like what being a person is actually. Um, and so much of it, even with the kind of pushback that the deep life movement is trying to make, right? It, it's still premised on this idea that we're supposed to be our very best versions of ourselves all the time, right? Um, productive all the time. And it's it, when you look at what the story of Christianity is, it's a really different story, right? Um, the Christian faith is not actually a self-help, like how to be your best self kind of story. It's actually this really, it's a story filled of, filled with grace about how flawed um, we actually are, um, how weak so many of us actually day-to-day -day are, and yet we are still loved. We are still welcomed, right? We can still bring all of ourselves are good are bad to the to the table um, and that there is a feast that is there for everyone and so I think the pitfall of the deep life philosophy in some ways is you know there is an interesting kind of ruthlessness to it um, um, and I even in the literature they use the word ruthlessness in a positive way you know like mm -hmm, be, you know like stoic and just like bear down into the work. Which, you know, again, for some people that might be a good word, you know, if they really are someone that struggles with a lot of distractions, you know, like it might be helpful to be like, okay, like I need to be a little more hard nosed about it. Um, and that, that boundaries are good, right? Like that's helpful, I think. Um, but the, in the end of the day, the, the larger story um, that one is being invited into, right, I think is a flawed story right? That, that, that in the end of the day, life is all about productivity. That, that gives me a little bit more confidence in making a confession uh, that I read Cal Newport's Digital Minimalism this summer, <laughs> and it changed everything in my life for about two weeks. And, uh, and, you know, there's a lot of us who could probably tell stories about, you know, trying to curb smartphone addiction or trying to get new rhythms and failing, you know, you, you note that there are books with titles like how to break up with your phone, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that we have almost this kind of attachment relationship and people pay large sums of money to go on digital detox retreats. Why is it not working? Why, why are our good intentions and our, you know, our best efforts to change our relationship to our devices going awry? And how would you propose an alternative way to approach our counterformation? Yeah. Um, well, my thoughts immediately go to, uh, you know, for, for Christians, at least uh, St. Paul and Romans 7, right? A sort of like, I, you know, I know what I'm supposed to be doing, but I, I, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, this, is a, this is part of the human condition, right? I mean, the, in, in some ways, we are kind of hitting that element of what it means to be human that, that 
very often we find ourselves doing things that we just know we don't want to be doing, but we still do it, right? Um, and so to that degree, I think, you know, we, we can have a conversation about, well, what is discipleship really then? What is the kinds of transformation that the Christian life invites people into? Um, but I think part of the issue with why we're, we're having trouble actually um, sustaining the kinds of changes we want to make is I think we, we, you know, especially for academics, um, I think we're, we're, we're the kind of people that like think, you know, if I just get more information and I understand it more and I gain insight, that's going to like create the transformation and create the change, right? Rather than realizing, and, and here I'm borrowing from uh, Jamie Smith's work uh, from You Are What You Love, um, where he takes an uh, Augustinian view and says, actually, um, we are not creatures of the mind per se. Um, we are creatures of the body, right? What we do with our bodies actually train our loves. They train, they form us. And so I often like to talk to my students about, you know, those of us who are athletes, those of us who are musicians, those of us who know, have had a chance to train in something, right? We know what that means. We know what Augustine means or what Smith is saying there. Uh, when, when doing those repetitions, doing those scales actually trains us, right, to a new sensibility, a new capacity. And so I think part of what we need to start kind of shifting our, our praxis in is realizing sometimes it's the body that has to move first and then the mind and the loves are going to follow rather than the other way around. You know, I think a lot of us think I got to feel a certain way. I got to think a certain way. And then my body is going to start doing something. Maybe it's flipped. Um, and we can start thinking about how to flip that. So kind of along those lines, I love the idea of, of shape of framing technology around our loves and counterformation liturgies, kind of that, that language that you use. Um, and I know you didn't prescribe specific rules uh, because everyone's situation is different and everyone, you know, has different needs, different. I think you used the word kryptonite at one point. Um, so are there ways that you'd suggest people can identify where they are being strongly misformed individually? And then, you know, kind of what counter liturgies might be most effective for those people? Um, I'm thinking kind of along the lines of atomic habits, if you're familiar with that you know, really small micro changes that kind of stack up together. Yeah. yeah. Um, so part of the book is uh, there's a series of exercises, or I actually use the word experiments um, that I put under the umbrella called the Freedom Project, which, which um, recommends that um, exactly as you said, you actually need to start by figuring out, you know, how might I be misformed? And, and sometimes that just involves paying more attention um, to when is it that I pick up my phone? Um, or if I do try to um, set my phone down or stay away from my laptop for two hours or six hours, if any of us could ever achieve the feat of 24 hours, right? Um, observing ourselves, you know, and, and maybe that this was a lot sort of, of goal, 24 hours <laughs> yeah. in, in one of your exercises. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's a bit of a shock to the system, right? Um, but that's, you know, I call it the digital fast, but that's what fast do. We all know, right, that 
that part of fasting is realizing what you're actually dependent on, you know, whether that's your coffee or your chocolate or whatever it might be. And, and it's incredibly humbling. Um, but, but the point of those exercises and those experiments is not to create guilt or shame, but it's just like, Oh, okay. Well, okay. Like let's observe that. Like, okay. So this is when I pick up my phone, right. Or, or it's when I'm bored or when I'm anxious or when I'm lonely or whatever it might be. Um, and then making, uh, taking a couple uh, steps of, of trying experiments. You know, I, I like the idea of experiments instead of steps or a plan to follow, because again, it's not about achievement, right? It's not like I got to hit this goal and then I'm like arrived. Um, I'm someone that cannot keep a, a New Year's resolution from my life. Like I actually get anxious when New Year's comes around because everyone's like, you know, what's your resolution? I'm always like, crumbling in failure because I can't keep any resolution. Um, Experiments are things that we try and um, we learn something from every single time, even when we quote unquote fail, right? I think we can try new counter liturgies, like changing um, the routines that we have when we wake up or when we go to bed. Um, when we're eating, uh, one can take really small shifts and pay attention. I think so much of it is, is trying to start paying attention, um, and realizing, oh, you know, this is what's happening to me when I make this shift. Kind of with that, I think a a really interesting kind of follow on, I'm sure you have lots of ideas about how you want to follow this on, but I think a really interesting follow on would be to like, as people start to like read the book and, and do the practice to like start to collect narratives from people and invite them into the conversation, you know, and say like, okay, what, what works, what doesn't work, you know, you had this experience, what worked for you, what, you know, I think that'd be, yeah, I'd love to read that follow-up book. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great (laughs) idea. You know, and, and I think that's, what's been so fun about, you know, my students and my um, internet and society class have been my guinea pigs through the years. Um, And so, um, but I think what has made it quote unquote work or, or that there's been some sort of impact in my students' lives is exactly what you're saying, Kate, is that because they've actually talked to each other, you know, like I make them do the assignment, right? But then they all talk to each other about it. It's not just something they did on their own you know, and then they just kind of have to process it on their own. They talk about it with each other. They laugh about, you know, the ways they couldn't do the 24 hour fast. And we all laugh about it, you know? Um, And so that it like sheds the guilt and the shame. We're all in this together. There's some kind of um, camaraderie and accountability journeying together, right? That I think, you know, those are the kinds of collective experiences that we need to be having more whether that's in the classroom or in our churches, um, I think there's just a lot of potential. Yeah, I appreciate that as well. Your focus on corporate practices, that it's not just you know me and my willpower, but yeah. as communities, as families, as friend groups saying, let's shift the cultural norm as to what is um, normal for us when we're together with respect to our devices and with respect to being present uh, with one another. Um, I wonder if somebody's listening to this and they think I need to change. Um, I know that I feel out of control with my phone. Um, I wonder maybe two things. What would you say is something that you want them to know 
about the Christian story, which funds this whole vision that you're um, that you're offering to us. And then what is one thing to do? Mm. Yeah. I think what the Christian story has to offer is hope in a deeper vision of what life is. Um, I think a lot of us, even with all the fun and the benefits that can come through our digital interactions, you know, I don't want to make light of that. I mean, there's so many wonderful things that actually do come through our phones. Um, But a lot of us also feel um, kind of tyrannized by it. I think what the Christian vision offers is a deeper um, vision of what communion looks like, you know, what being with each other, what being in relationship looks like. Um, And it offers also a kind of relief about um, how time is not something that we need to hoard. It's not something that's scarce. It's something that we're, it's a gift that we're called to inhabit. Most of us are like, I have no idea what that means. I am one of those people, right? But it's, but that's the promise. It's like, no, time is a gift um, that we're called to, to experience and celebrate and feast in. Um, and so I think the, the Christian uh, message is, is genuinely good news um, for people who are frustrated and, and tired. In terms of one thing they can do, I always go to what we do in our first 10 minutes after we wake up in the morning, um, because I feel like I know for myself, when I go to bed after a long, hard day, I wake up, there's the potential, the potential to be refreshed. Um, even though I'm, I'm an anxious waker, I'll say that, I'll be honest. I'm the kind of person that wakes up and I know the, the first things that rush into my mind are the 70 things I have to do like that morning. <laughs> And I'm trying to organize in my mind how I'm going to do all 70 things. Um, But I think if we actually take the first 10 minutes of our day and not look at our screen um, and think about um, what could that look like? You know, I think so so many of us are habituated to look at our calendar, our email, our social media feeds, our texts, whatever it is. But what if we actually took 10 minutes, even just 10 minutes to just be in our bodies, um, to look outside to, uh, you know, stumble around the house or the room that you're in um, and smell the coffee. Um, If we pray or read scripture, just do that. If we journal, maybe we just make our bed. That's all we do for 10 minutes. Um, and, And just make that a sacred time of being present to ourselves, being present to God and just finding out, you know, finding out like what that can be like. For some folks, and I, you know, when I started doing this myself, uh, the beginning was really hard. The first 10 minutes were hard, impossible. Right? It's like, I can't check my phone for 10 minutes. Right. And then that sort of just felt kind of ridiculous. Like, I can't check my phone for 10 minutes. <laughs> like, why can't I do this? But by and by, I've come to really just love those 10 minutes, actually. Um, it's, a, it's a time of freedom and rest um, before the rest of the world rushes in. I love that, that, I, that idea. I think you also mentioned at one point in the book that you guys like keep your phones out of your bedrooms and your house and yes. things like that. Which, yeah. That makes it know, easier. Really, yeah. really mean, a to... lot easier to not, not touch that first thing in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. And oh. yeah. And for students, especially it might require getting an alarm clock, like a separate right. alarm clock, separate alarm Cause, clock. Cause it is really hard when your phone is your alarm clock 
So let's say, you know, like thinking about our students or, you know, maybe your spouse or your kids. I know you have kids kind of in the the teen-ish range. People that we know and love that maybe we've read your book and made some changes and really feel like there's positive things in our lives as a result of that. Um, do you have any recommendations for how you might encourage someone else short of just like being like, here, here's the book, how you can encourage them to step into engaging that, um, mm-hmm. maybe even if they're not ready or ex- yeah, yeah. excited about the idea of change? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I think in the end of the day, what I'm interested in is not so much getting people off technology. What I'm interested in is seeing that we become people who can actually live into life and our humanity in the ways that we're created. And so I kind of come at it with, you know, my book is, there's a lot of it that's fairly pessimistic, especially the first half. I'll admit that. But I, in, in one sense, I'm fairly optimistic in that I feel like we are people of appetites and that when we taste something real and good, we know it, right? Um, you know, um, and so I think part of what we can do, whether it's with our younger children or um, friends that might not be particularly interested um, in this conversation is, is to say, hey, let is to is to actually find ways to um, be present and doing activities that are life-giving, um, recognizably life-giving and, and um, tech-free, right? And cultivating an appetite for that, right? Whether it is playing music or using our bodies and going out and playing ultimate Frisbee together, right? Um, and, and saying, hey, wasn't that amazing, right? Like, I want more of that. Like, I want to do that more um, and trusting that those kinds of practices um, actually fill us. Um, and then that becomes, becomes the beginning of a conversation to say, hey, how can we live lives that actually let people be together at the table, not distracted, like where we just tell the stories and we laugh together and have a good time. And so finding ways to build those life-giving practices um, and, and kind of um, um, attract and remind people of what, what life can be, I think is one way in. Well, our guest has been Dr. Felicia Song, and the book is Restless Devices, Recovering Personhood, Presence, and Place in the Digital Age from IVP Academic. Dr. Song, thanks so much for joining us. Sure thing. It's been a real pleasure. Really fun. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andreas Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Ruth Clark, Shannon Vischer, Vaughn Donahue, and the production team at the Andreas Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in.